2: Welcome to the Friday show. That means we're at the end of the week. I've been struggling all day. I told Paula, this doesn't seem like Friday. My days aren't the, the days that they, they're supposed to feel like, but it is Friday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the word to stand on for life a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, life questions, anything and everything that's on your heart. All you need to do is provide the phone call 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email your questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or via our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. As usual, lots going on here this weekend. Um, Quick reminder, tomorrow morning we have uh, corporate prayer at uh, 9.30 in the sanctuary. We also have going on tomorrow, beginning at 10 o'clock, or children's clothing exchange. And we want to make this available to anybody and everybody who comes. So you are all invited if you need clothing for your children, or if you have clothing your children have outgrown, please bring it. But remember, you don't have to bring clothes to get clothes. Uh, We just want to be a blessing to people, and these clothing exchanges Uh, always seem to do that. Uh, A little bit later in the summer, we will have uh, a women's clothing exchange, and uh, we're glad to be able to do that. So that starts here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio at 10 o'clock tomorrow, and you are free to come and shop to your heart's desire. So we will be doing that tomorrow at 10 o'clock. I'm going to be teaching tonight in the book of Revelation, chapter 18. And I'm going to finish. I don't care how long it takes because I can't wait to get to Revelation, chapter 19. Next Friday night, Um, Jesus is coming back. So at least here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. So that and then the teaching continuing in the the gospel of Mark. I'm going to be teaching uh, on um, in Mark chapter six. um, The emphasis is going to be on the feeding of the five thousand. So all that's what's going on here. Wherever it is that you're going to church, go with the intent, the specific intent of being a blessing to somebody else. And it will invigorate your church experience, I promise you. Okay, well, let's get to some questions that um, have been sent while we await your phone calls. I do want to follow up on the question yesterday. Paula and I didn't have time just when we were going to go back to it. We got some phone calls. Uh, It's a question, is it possible to restore a marriage after infidelity? And the answer Paula indicated was yes, she's right. That's always God's uh, preference reconciliation is what he did for us, and um, the the answer is that 's always god's first choice now, two things that I want to add to what we talked about yesterday, and then we 'll move on. The first is that God gives some people the freedom to divorce um, in a marriage. Uh, there are grounds, and when God gives somebody freedom we 've always got to honor and respect their choice to exercise that freedom. Uh, not only does he give them the, uh, the, the choice to um, stay or go, but but when they go, well-meaning Christians do sometimes say, well, God hates divorce. You know, we can't impose upon the freedom that God has given. So I think that's really important. Secondly, um, you know, we have to learn how to forgive. And I have seen Paula and I have seen uh, and not just an isolated incident or two, but we have seen a lot of marriages that were not only restored after infidelity, but were better than ever. I mean, there's a humbling process that people go through when you're humbled and it's the spirit of God who's doing the humbling. Then there's a lot of really, really good things that happen as a result of that. So, yes, the marriage can be restored. Trust and faith can be restored. But I want to repeat, um, this is a matter for people to pray about. If God gives you the freedom to divorce, he may say it's okay. He knows the future. Uh, He may tell you to stay. That's also because he knows the future. So uh, Anonymous, I hope that gives you some hope. Um, Marriages can be and often are restored after infidelity. Thanks a lot for that question. David asks, Pastor Ron, was Peter demon-possessed when Jesus called him Satan? No, David, he wasn't demon-possessed. The the point Jesus was making was that it was Satan, um, the, the little G God of this world, who was behind the sentiment or the thought that Peter um, uttered. You know, um, Lord... May it be far from you, the idea of Jesus um, being crucified. No, it can't, can't, can't happen. And that Jesus was looking at the spirit behind. He was looking at Satan, not inside Peter, but Satan, who is the one who is trying to get Peter, just like he's trying to get you and me, to do things uh, from a worldly perspective so he was not demon possessed he was just saying get thee behind me satan that was the spirit behind the sentiment and of course what we've got to do is be obedient to god so when peter was told you don't have in mind the things of god but you instead have the things of of man in mind and in heart uh, that was um, a turn away from god's will now david very quickly you remember at the beginning Of Jesus's ministry, Um, Satan uh, uh, tempted Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days or for after 40 days of Jesus going without food and water. And Satan's emphasis in that temptation was to try to get Jesus to take a shortcut in the will of God. Uh, if God loves you, if you're the Son of God, why are you hungry? Why are you going through this? And he was trying to get Jesus to take the easy way out. And of course, Jesus, of course, wasn't going to do that. But he was also trying to do that with Peter. So no, Christians cannot be demon-possessed. Let me say that again for clarity. Christians cannot be demon-possessed. So Chris, Peter was not demon-possessed. Um, he was just being tempted. Peter asks a very difficult question. Uh, what is meant by waiting on the Lord? Peter, um, I think uh, I'm going to give you the practical answer. You know, there's some super spiritual answers and I'll deal with briefly. But, but the practical answer is waiting on the Lord is waiting for his will on his timing. Peter, if you're anything at all like me, anything at all, um, I rushed to do things if God, if I think God's putting something on my heart then I, I believe okay let's do it yesterday I want to do it right now no no delay and there are times when I realize that I'm trying to jump ahead of the Lord I'm impatient sometimes so I need to take a step back and wait on the Lord rather than me opening doors or forcing doors open and I think most of us know how to do that um, I need to take a step back and just wait on the Lord to open the doors. And in my particular case, I'm actually Peter going through something this very moment, um, not just this moment, but I mean, it's been for uh, a couple of weeks on uh, that very thing. It, it's a door that I really believe that I could crash open at the same time. The Lord has told me to slow down, just wait, watch what I'm going to do. And uh, by waiting on the Lord, um, that means I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to make sure that when this door opens or if this door opens, that, that there can be no doubt this is of the Lord. I like think sometimes we get so uh, intent on doing what we want on our time schedule. I think, Peter, um, we have a tendency to jump out in front of the Lord. One of the comment, Peter, I don't know if you're married or not, but, but this is one of the real advantages of a husband and wife walking together. Paula keeps me, uh, just my accountability for her and my accountability to her. Paula keeps me from jumping out too quickly. If there's something that, that, uh, I want to do, uh, I can run it through her. I know she's praying for me. I know she wants only the best for me. She's always been on my side. And if she says, well, why don't we slow down and wait? I know that's the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking through her. So waiting on the Lord, the spiritual application of this, you know, Peter, and I I don't know what which you're referring to, Uh, but I think this is sort of a pseudo spiritual application. You know, people thinking they want to get into a group and just wait on the Lord. And I don't know what that means. They sing songs or it's just waiting for the Holy Spirit to fall. Uh, We don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to do that corporately. The Holy Spirit is always there as long as believers are there. So I think the the modern culturally accepted means of waiting on the Lord is let's just get together. We'll play music. and We'll just wait and see what the Holy Spirit does. I think that leaves us open to a whole lot of bad doctrine uh, bordering even on apostasy. So uh, we don't have to wait. We we know what to do when we gather to church. Uh, When we're praying, we know how to pray. I think it's really important that what we do is simply do church when we're together in fellowship the way it was established for us in the book of Acts by the early church. So, Peter, I hope that helps. Here is a question from Hope. Um, She asks, what authority does a believer have over demons? Um, Hope, we don't really have any authority. I just taught recently on on uh, Jesus sending out his disciples. In fact, I think it was last Sunday. Uh, Jesus sending out his disciples two by two and gave them authority over demons. And he gave them the authority to um, cast out not, not just demons, but but to heal uh, from diseases and, and other things. Um, but their authority was borrowed. I think sometimes we read that and we think, well, well, Jesus gave his power to his disciples, and we're disciples, so we have the same authority they did. And that's really, really bad hermeneutics. That's, that's not uh, rightly dividing the word of God. Jesus gave his disciples authority over demons and the authority or the power to heal diseases for that one-time two-by-two trip. Case in point, hope, even Judas was one of those 12. And their authority was a borrowed authority. The power, supernaturally, was a borrowed power given to them by Jesus, and it was only for that one trip. You'll remember when they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, uh, the the other nine disciples were down um, when they came off of that mountain. They found the other nine arguing with the Jewish uh, exorcists and rabbis uh, why they couldn't cast a demon out of the, the, the boy who was possessed by demons. The father just wanted his son healed. And they couldn't do it. Why? Because Jesus hadn't given them power. So in the same way, we need fresh power every time we encounter demonic spirits we need fresh power we we can't be walking uh, outside of the will of god and expect that that power is going to be there because once he gave us power we need fresh power every time and and i want to say this uh, we don't encounter demons too often in the west where we live um but but if you ever encounter demons, you want to be sure of two things. You want to be sure that you're walking with Jesus, that you're in the will of God, that there's no unrepentant sin in your life. And secondly, you want to be in prayer so that the Lord has given you that power or authority over demons. I've encountered demons, and yelling at them is useless Uh, binding them makes no sense at all, biblically or otherwise. Um, So we don't really have any authority at all. Uh, Demons oppress us all the time. They cannot possess us. But if we encounter an unsaved person who is possessed by a demon, then the power of the Holy Spirit will be there. But you need to access it urgently and you need to access it um, so that you you're not fighting the demon in your own power. You will remember in the book of Acts, um, uh, the the Jewish exorcists they uh, encountered um, some demon possessed people, and they tried to cast him out in the name of the Jesus who Paul preaches. We command you to come out, and the demons just looked at him and said, "We know Paul, and we know Jesus." And here's what they were saying, Hope. They're saying, Who are you? When well, we start shouting at demons, and that's what we're kind of taught to do if we're watching so called Christian television or listening to radio, and you get all of these made up stories about encounters with demons. Uh, believe me, nobody in this audience wants to encounter a demon, period. I have in the past, and it's awful. It's awful. And nobody comes out clean. So it's a fight, and sometimes it's beyond anything that we can imagine. So um, our only authority, hope, comes from Jesus Christ, and we've got to be sure that he's there with us, and we're fighting in his strength and not in our own. Hope that helps. 340-9585, we'd love to have your live calls and questions. Here is a call from one of my favorite names, Graciela. Um, she says, "How does one walk the line between obedience and being legalistic?" Um, Graciela, I think this is an easy call. Um, I, I think sometimes when we're talking about being obedient, there are other people who defensively will say, "Oh, you're just being a legalist," but but we know the difference. We know better. So the line is pretty well defined. We are being obedient. Jesus said, "If you love me, you will obey me." It's simple. Um, if somebody's getting drunk. They're, they're being disobedient. The Bible makes it clear. If somebody's having a sexual relationship with somebody that they're not married to or if somebody's involved in homosexuality, if somebody has decided that though I'm a male biologically, I'm a female. That's how I identify. We know they're being disobedient. Now remember, we're talking mostly to Christians when it comes to this line between, between obedience and being legalistic. And if they're really believers... They've got the same Holy Spirit living in them that you do. So Graciela, don't be intimidated by somebody who's accusing you of being legalistic. Just ask them, okay, how so? And basically what it's going to boil down to is they want you to be able to justify their sin. And you can say, you know, I refuse to do that. There's nothing legalistic about saying that we can't be drunk. There's nothing legalistic about saying that we shouldn't be smoking marijuana or that we shouldn't be having sex, whatever the sin might be. And that's usually their platform. Uh, Being legalistic, on the other hand, that's adding to the word of God. Uh, I'll give you just one simple example, Graciela. Um, I know a lot of Christians who will look at somebody who's smoking and say, you shouldn't be smoking. That's a sin. Well, that's being legalistic because that's not what the Bible says. Now, smoking may be filthy and horrible, may be unhealthy, but it isn't sin. I'll give you another example. We live in a culture where people are just fascinated with tattoos, personally. I love tattoos. I mean, if they're good tattoos, and if the artwork is done, I love color. If I wasn't such a pain wimp, I'd have tattoos. Um, But there are others who say, no, no, if you have tattoos, that's a sin. That's being legalistic. And so there's all kinds of examples like that, Graciela. But you never have to, to, to tread lightly on that line because that line is really, really well defined by Scripture. So the next time you tell somebody what they're doing is wrong and they say, oh, you're just a legalist, say, no, no, no. I'm just telling you, this is what Jesus says, or this is what Paul says, or this is what Peter or James says. So um, don't back down and don't be intimidated. That's one of those flash words that people throw out um, just to sort of move the focus from their sin to try to justify what they want to do. Thank you for the question, Graciela. God bless you. Let's go to our first phone call today. Dee from San Antonio on line one. D, thank you for calling. You're on the air.
0: I was with some friends today, and we were reading over Romans 5, 12 and 13. And uh, I got a little confused on verse 13, so I was wondering if you could uh, clarify exactly what that means. And I will get off the line and listen to you on the radio. Be-
2: be, before you before you hang up, you said thirteen, uh, chapter five, verse thirteen.
0: Yeah, Romans chapter five, verse 12 okay. to 13, and thirteen was the uh, the verse that got me a little
2: confused. Okay, good. I can do that. Thank you very very much. Um, Thank you. Bye. Paul is Paul is making a case here, D, for the utter sinfulness of man and the goodness of God. He starts from the very first chapter and through the first eight chapters, um, he's building a a perfect legal case for man is sinful, God is good, and God is the only answer for sin because only one man died without sin and was able to justify all those who were sinners. So he says, I'm going to go back up a couple of verses in this D, so we can um, get make sure everybody has a context. Um, he says in verse eleven, uh, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In other words, we had a we had a problem with sin. Uh, verse ten actually says we were God's enemies, and yet we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. And then He gives us a, a big boost by saying hey now that we're reconciled how much more shall we be saved through his life and then he says not only is this so but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we now have received reconciliation therefore just as sin entered the world through one man Adam's sin carried to all of us Adam's sin uh, um, d we inherited his sin nature So he is, and this is the the passage of Scripture where we talk about the federal headship of both Adam and the second Adam, Jesus. He is the representative of all mankind. And so his sin caused us to become sinners. And because the wages of sin is death, death came and then Um, death came, not just to us, but to all men, because everybody has sinned. And there's a verse for before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Now we can go back to chapter one and Paul talks about conscience, God giving men conscience before the law was given to Moses. Um, the only law was conscience. And so what what he's saying in chapter five here is that man wasn't guilty of violating the law until there was actually a law. That doesn't mean men were innocent. It simply means that we were condemned by our consciences. We were condemned because God gave us the ability to discern between right and wrong. And everybody knows that what we were doing is wrong. You know, Paul and I were talking not long ago about this, you know, um, um, w- when 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 people have sex, they're not married, they know it's wrong. Now, they, they repeat it so often they, they get hard hearts toward it, but the first time, everybody knows it's wrong. First time you do drugs, first time you get drunk, first time you steal something, you know it's wrong. So you were guilty, your guilt was pronounced because you violated your conscience, Um but he's saying that the violation of the law in verse 13 wasn't held against him because there was no law. But the universal sinfulness of man is evident because there was still sin in the world before the law was given. And that's what verse 13 is all all about it's it's uh we're guilty, but the basis of of our, of our guilt is our conscience. then once the law was published, everybody knew what was right and wrong, and of course we have laws, no matter the religion, no matter the history uh the background of people. Uh, we have laws uh, we drive on the freeway and we exceed the speed limit. We know we're guilty now we may not care. But we know we're guilty. And that's really what he's saying in Romans chapter 5. And, you know, Dee, if you go read through Romans 5, get to to the end of it. uh, And and in the first verse of chapter 6, after this glorious grace, what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? God forbid, it says in chapter 6, verse 2. Thank you for that. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our week. We would love your live calls 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand them for life. I'll be back in two minutes.
1: Stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to our final 30 minutes of the week, 340-9585. Here is a question from our mobile app from Scott. He said, can you please explain Psalm 147 verses 15-15 to 18, especially the first part of verse 18. Let me read it, and then I'll get into a a quick explanation, Scott. It says, He sends his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them, and that's a particular part he wanted explained, and says he stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. Um, obviously, um, I just said into with regard to the Romans passage, uh, every man is without excuse. And, um, that's exactly what's happened when it says, uh, in this passage of scripture that he gives, uh, he strengthens the bars of your gates. He gives us security. This is a, a good, kind God. Uh, he gives us a future, uh, earlier in that, Passages or before, just before that passage, he blesses uh, your children within you. He gives us peace, peace within the borders, and he gives you provision. He fills you with the finest of wheat. Now, Jerusalem, what he's saying to Israel is the fortifications are complete. Um, and their strength is found in the security that is provided by God, and we also know from His Word that we've got boundaries that don't move. One of the great things about um, that, that every parent needs to learn, you know, where we typically, especially first-time parents, we typically indulge our children. Uh, they need limits, and, and and God is about to describe the limits that He's given us. When limits keep moving, the kids keep testing. And we humans are the same with God. Now, he's given us limits that never move. That's one of the best things about the immovable, steadfast word of God. We don't have to worry that the standard today will change tomorrow. We know what God expects of us. And in in that expectation, we can be comfortable knowing that we are right with God. So when it says he sends out his command to the earth, this is a short series of descriptions of how God works in the world. This is how we can assure ourselves that we're in his presence. And by saying that uh, his command to the earth uh, and that's his word and his word runs swiftly. We don't have to worry about it. Uh, You know, the Apostle Paul asked for prayer in 2nd Thessalonians chapter three. And he said uh, he, he prayed that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified um, his word runs swiftly, that means that that his word can overtake even those of us who run away from him. My life, Scott, is a perfect illustration of that. God found me when I was running away from him, and I couldn't outrun his word. I couldn't outrun his presence. He loved me so much that he tracked me down, and, and you know, no matter how fast I tried to run, Jesus was faster than I was. So his command... Um, His word, we've all got it. So when it says he gives snow like wool, um, that's just God's power. Uh, uh, Imagine a blizzard. I don't even like to talk about cold weather, but um, you can see the the damage that's done in severe winter weather. And this is just a word picture, a poetic word picture of that kind of power. Um, When He said his word and melts them, uh, the word of God can melt even the hardest of hearts. Again, my life, I my heart was so hard I wanted nothing to do with God, but his word. And I would also add, in this case, the prayers of his people melted my heart. And God did all of those things just to get me. So all of this is just God demonstrating his power on our behalf. So good question, Scott. Keep reading the Psalms. Thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety Here is a question from Brian. He says, what would you say to someone who is in a sinful relationship, but who also says their conscience is okay? Well, Brian, that's the person that I would give the gospel to. Because this is a person who is unsaved. My conscience is fine. Well, then you're not saved. And and they would say, well, how can you judge me? And I would say, because the Bible says, Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, that people who live like you are living will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you were saved, the Holy Spirit in you, and I always say this in, in a way that I think makes the point. I say, the Holy Spirit's first name is Holy. And Jesus said, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so we've got to realize that if you really had the Holy Spirit in you, your conscience would be bothering you. And then I would go one step farther, Brian, and tell them that the fact that their conscience isn't bothering them when they're in open, willful rebellion against God should be a terrifying thought to them. It should be something that is so frightening to them that all they can do is is run into the presence of the Lord to receive mercy. That's that's what it is. So that's why I tell them. So I would say you're not saved. I, I thought you were, but you're not. Because if you were the Holy Spirit in you would be convicting you. And typically, Brian, what happens when people get to this kind of a defensive position? Um, they know what's right and wrong. They know it even if they're not saved. They just don't care if they're not saved. But if they're saved, they're trying to pretend like they don't care. But there's not a moment's peace that they're having. I think this is one of those times when you've got to say very boldly, you know what you're doing is wrong. So how can you claim to be a believer and say your conscience isn't bothering you? And then pray for them. Now, confronting people like that may cost you some friends. But a real friend is willing to risk the relationship uh, in order to save their friend. So that's what I would say. I would I don't let people pretend. I just don't let people pretend. I've had people say to me, Brian, they'd say, well, I'm a Christian. And and I would ask, Okay, can you explain to me how I would ever know that based on the way you're living? And usually there's a hesitation. Say, what makes you think you're saved? When you can live in a way that's in direct rebellion against what God says, knowing Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me, how could you ever be accused of loving Jesus? And you need to give them something to think about. And I promise you, Brian, again, they may hate you, but the Holy Spirit will honor the firm stand that you took. Remember, it's got to be in love. Everybody needs to remember that before we confront people with their sin, we've got to take the beam out of our own eye. We've got to make sure that we're walking right with God ourselves. But when we're walking with Jesus, believe me, we're accountable to God to confront people with their sin, especially those who profess to be Christians. It's that simple. Thank you, Brian. Charlie says, can you talk about what it means to fear God? Charlie, this is a hard one because we can't imagine uh, being afraid of a gracious, loving, infinitely so God. You know, we, we hear that Jesus is our friend. Jesus himself told us that in, in uh, the Upper Room Discourse in his uh, uh, ministry to his disciples in John, John chapter 17. Hebrews says that he's our big brother, our elder brother. And we like, to, we like that part of the relationship. But all throughout the Bible, this idea of fearing God, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, Solomon wrote. And so the whole idea is we, we've got to have this healthy, and I like to use the word filial, it's a loving fear of God. It's not like we're shaking in our boots afraid. But more to the point, Charlie, I think it means that we are shaking in our boots afraid of not walking with Jesus. You know, Charlie, there's a a dynamic that I can never escape. I'm 31 years now a Christian. And um, I realize that all of the good that God has done for me and through me in these 31 years, I can ruin it all in an instant. And that terrifies me. It's one of the reasons that I pray Daily, um, today of my own free will I choose to serve Jesus not by might nor by power but by your spirit I always add in your name and for your glory and then I go through the process saying I, I extend my hand to you by faith I take your hand in faith Jesus and I will not let go until you bless me the reason I do that Charlie is because I'm terrified I'm terrified of what I might do what I'm capable of doing if I walk away from Jesus. And so I'm afraid of a holy God. I'm also afraid, Charlie, of Jesus' statement when he said, to whom much is given, much more is required. How God has been unbelievably gracious with me. He's given me gifts. He's given me a, a life that is so rich and so full. And I could blow it in an instant just by getting some separation, some distance between me and Jesus. And that too terrifies me. But it's a holy fear. It's not a uh, I'm going to blow it in any moment kind of fear. It's just a, a fear that says i got to stay with you, Jesus, because if I'm not, I'm in trouble. So that's what I believe having the fear of God means it's 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 a fear of of uh, being separate from him it's a fear of rebelling against him it's a fear of doing what i want on my terms uh, i realize that we can come to god as we are but we need to come to him on his terms and sadly, Charlie, in our church culture, there's just too much easy grace preaching that says all you gotta do is believe and say it and get goosebumps and cry a little bit and everything's gonna be fine. And that's not it at all. So that's what it means to fear God. Every professing Christian every professing Christian who is rebelling against God ought to be filled with a holy terror of of God that moment when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God our Father. So Charlie, I hope that makes sense. Uh, I've heard people say, well, you know, we're to revere him or to be in awe of him. And while both of those things are true, that's not what being uh, the the fear of God means. Thank you. Here's a question from Oliver. It's just two words. Church hopping with a question mark. Uh, And then he adds... Is it okay to change churches often? Oliver, if you're changing churches often, I think there's a problem that you need to address. Second Corinthians 13.5 says that we're to examine ourselves daily to see whether or not we're in the faith. So uh, I guess it's okay to church hop until you find a church, but it's not okay to keep church hopping. Now, I'm... Of the opinion, and this is all this is, this is my opinion after observing uh, for now almost 27 years as a pastor. uh, People change churches for two reasons, maybe three. One is they don't want to be under authority, they just don't want to be under authority. That's simple. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. And to, to get connected to a local church means that we're putting ourselves under the authority. Of that church. Now I'm not talking about churches that abuse their authority. Not at all. This is just the way God set it up, and and usually people don't like authority. And switching churches, you know, when you think, well, maybe that pastor's asking a little bit too much, uh, and then this, then you know, your your response is, well, I'll just go find another church, and you do that, and there's always a sense of. Uh, excitement! You go to a new church. Oh, I like this. I like that. But you need to find a church, Oliver, where you can hear the voice of a pastor who's faithfully teaching the word of God and you can sit under his authority. I recognize nobody likes being under authority, but that's one of the major battles we have to win. Another reason that people don't like uh, to stay at a church is because they don't want to serve. It's easier just to come in, go home um you' you're you're checking your spiritual box. I went to church uh but the reality is is that we have a responsibility to serve the people that God has surrounded us with, and he has given us spiritual gifts with which to do that and when people begin to serve Oliver. That's when their walk with Jesus begins to to blossom. That's when the abundant life that Jesus promised us is available to all of us. It's when we're serving others. We're, we're not there serving ourselves. You know, too often we go to a church. say, OK, well, well, I want to be blessed. Lord, help me find a church that will bless me. No, Lord, help me find a church where I can be a blessing to others. And doing it just for his glory. I often say motive is everything. Doing it just for his glory. And too often, Oliver, we Christians are lazy spiritually. We're lazy, lazy, lazy. And we don't want to serve. You know what's amazing to me, Oliver, after now almost 27 years, it'll be 27 years in May since we started Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. um, It amazes me that Christians actually think, that just going to church is serving it's not. We go to church to get equipped to serve, to learn how to use our gifts I 'm on our radio program, not this one, but the, the teaching programs, the pre-recorded programs that are on this station and and, uh, and KDry here in town and other places throughout the nation. Um, uh, I'm in uh, first Corinthians right now and i'm I'm in that passage of scripture from the transition from uh chapters twelve thirteen and fourteen um when when Paul talks about body life and using gifts and appreciating what the gifts are and then how to love the people that's that's something you can't do if you keep going to a new church all the time so we don't like to be under authority. We don't like to serve. Well, I'm tired. The weekends are my only time off, so I'm just going to go to church. That's not serving at all. And then the third reason is, Oliver, a lot of Christians are stingy. We don't want to give. If you go to a new church regularly, you can just give a tiny little bit, or not at all, nobody will notice. There's no accountability. And, you know, those are the tests, Oliver. God wants to see if, You really do belong to him. And the truth is, Oliver, you're missing out. If you're not a part of a functioning, loving, local body of believers, you're the one who's missing out. You're the one on the outside looking in, and you're the one who's losing rewards because you're not being a faithful steward. It's sort of like the parable of the talents where uh, the the man given one talent uh, hid it. And he said, I know you're a hard man, you're gonna to expect too much of me. And and so he buried it, and when, when the master returned, he just gave it back, said, Well, well, I just I didn't lose anything. Uh and the whole time you're losing rewards. So, Oliver, it's not okay to church hop. Find a church, get involved, and be blessed by being a blessing to others. Now before I go to Pamela's question, let me say this. I'm aware that we live in a time where people have already made up their own minds about questions like that. The same thing is true with online church. Well, well, Pastor, I watch online. That really doesn't do any value to the body of Christ. I'm glad you're listening to the word, but online church isn't church. When you're online, I call it church in the pajamas. When you're online, uh, you you can't serve anybody. It's sort of like you're bearing your talent like the man in the parable. So we need to be a part of the church and I realize I'm not going to change many people's minds but the next time you do church hop, Oliver or anybody else who watches online, be special take special notice of how much more joy and fullness the people are really digging in and really committed are experiencing than the joy that's in your life. We were never meant to do this Christian walk alone. The importance of the body of Christ from the very first days of the church. When it really costs something for a Jew to convert to Christianity, it cost them their family. It would cost them the ability to earn money. It would cost them a place to live. That's why they were able to go from house to house as well as to meet together corporately. Body life is more important than I can adequately communicate. Thank you for that. 340-9585. We've got some time left to take a couple of calls. If you hurry, Pamela asked this question. She says, Someone told me Jesus was the... Angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. Why would they call him an angel? Well, that's in a pre-incarnate appearance, Pamela. And um, um, there, there's two dead giveaways. One requires a studying the language. If there's a definite article, not. And I'm going to emphasize the. It's the Angel of the Lord. That's always Jesus. So when you're you're studying and it's the Angel Lord, um, you, you're you're seeing a manifestation of Jesus before. The 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 the, uh, incarnation in Bethlehem. Um, The other giveaway is that people worship him. And he allows them to worship an angel would never allow himself to be worshiped over and over. When when angels deliver these visions or deliver messages from God in the Old Testament, it's the Old Testament prophet, um, you know, the, the, the angel is so terrifying looking and so holy that the, the men fall down on their face and worship him. And they say, no, no, get up. I too am, but a servant of God, the most high God. When they worship the angel of the Lord, that's because he's worthy of worship. That's why Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was Jesus in pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord. So uh, that's just an appearance before the the cradle at Bethlehem. And uh, we have several... um, regular appearances of Jesus in that time Pamela let me recommend a book I always recommend this book uh, to people that ask this question uh, there's a book called um, Christ Before the Manger by Ron Rhodes R-H-O-D-E-S um, and it's 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 just a wonderful book that talks about all of the, the pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament so that's why Leah, Leah says, and I thought we had more time than we do. We're inside about four minutes now. Leah said, "What can I say to people who say Jesus and the Holy Spirit are just extension of the Father?" Um, Leah, it's it's certainly wrong. Now you're talking about modalism, and uh, it's just people who have a hard time, and I, we understand that people have a hard time with the math of the Trinity. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, the the Hebrew Shema says. And yet um, we know that he's manifest in three persons. And and the way I like to describe it is three ministries or ministry personalities, um, but still one God. Uh, you see, the Father is fully God, Jesus is fully God, and the Holy Spirit is fully God. So it's not just the Father morphing into Jesus or the Father morphing into the Holy Spirit. In some cases, it gets really uh, aberrant uh, doctrinally, Leah, uh, uh, people, the Jesus-only groups say, no, Jesus is the Father and Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Well, that flies in the face of what Scripture teaches. Jesus and the Father are distinct. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are distinct. Both God, all with the same attributes. They're not junior partners in the Godhead. It's not like the Father's the president and Jesus is the vice president and 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 the Holy Spirit is the secretary uh, uh, at arms. Uh, it's it's they're they're all completely God. And what you need to do is just tell them what the Word says and challenge them to study it. Not not in a confrontational way, because when you grasp and I don't mean with a full intellectual understanding. But when you grasp the reality, when you accept by faith what the Word teaches, the Word teaches they're separate, they're distinct, but they're all God. When you grasp that reality by faith, it really will change their lives. And Jesus is the way that we can know God. Paul writes that God lives in unapproachable light. So without Jesus being God, we could never approach that light. But Jesus has torn that veil. He's broken down that barrier of hostility and enables us to approach that light. The Holy Spirit empowers us to approach that light. So, Leah, that's aberrant doctrine. Um, but it doesn't mean they're all heretics. It just means they need to really dig in and accept what the Bible says about each of the members of the Godhead. It is a wonderful, wonderful journey when you really learn it. Uh, And there's a lot of helps out there, a lot of helps out there. So, Leah, I hope that helps you. Thank you very, very much. Well, we are now getting close to the music coming on. I want to thank you for a good week on the program. Um, Go to church this weekend. Ask God to give you discernment. Okay, Lord, who needs to be comforted? Who can I encourage? Who can I pray for? And I promise you, your church experience will change. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Tonight, here at Calvary Chapel, I'm going to be teaching Revelation chapter 18, Hope to see you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. See you next week. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.